this evening, I'm going to share with you uh, out of the book of Romans. Charles Spurgeon called the book of Romans the greatest book to ever be written. I believe in the equal inspiration, validity, and authority of the text. That means that I believe Genesis is just as inspired as Revelation. Exodus is just as inspired as the book of John. But what we believe is that not all scripture is equally applicable at the same time. For example, if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus, by the time you leave, you will. But if you were to come up and ask me, Pastor, I've never read my Bible before, what book should I read? I'm not gonna tell you to read Leviticus. I'm gonna tell you to read the book of John. Not because I don't think Leviticus is inspired, but because right now what you need in your life is the applicability of the gospel of John. Because it will give you front to back the story of Jesus, which is what you need most. But I love the book of Romans because it helps frame in our theology. In many ways, Romans became the roadmap for the Protestant Reformation. It became the rallying cry of people like Luther and others who just determined in their hearts that there has to be something more than the dry, dead religion that they were currently being served. Many of them gave their life for daring to break away from the Catholic Church, believing in the priesthood of the believers. Essentially, special revelation didn't just belong to the pastor or the priest who stood behind the pulpit, but every individual who could call upon the name of the Lord could have a unique and personal relationship with Jesus and be filled with his spirit. That was such a radical idea in the 1500s that many gave their lives for that radical witness. Now we enjoy it so freely and casually 600 years later, it's like, oh yeah, that's dope, now we're in church. Or we open our Bibles and we're like, oh, it's so great how many translations there is. And I can pull up on my Bible app 72 different translations and read them all at the same time. But do you understand that when the Bible was translated originally and then when it was later translated out of the Latin Vulgate into the common language of the people, Bible translators were burned at the stake? Do you know prior to the Protestant Reformation, they used to chain Bibles to the pulpit so that the common man could not take them, so they could not read for themselves the wonderful works and riches of Christ Jesus? The religious cartel had a stranglehold on Christianity. They were terrified of what it would look like if regular people started to read a regular word and get inspired by a supernatural God. And the Protestant Reformation breaks forth and revival begins to sweep Western Europe and Eastern Europe. And eventually it makes its way into the new world with the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening. And the entire face of Christendom was changed because people got a hold of this reality. I can have a personal relationship with God. And you need to know today that what gets you into heaven is not the relationship that you have with God by proxy of your favorite celebrity pastor. Hear me. When you stand before God, the only question that you'll answer is, did you put faith in the risen savior of the universe? I'm not talking about how many podcasts you downloaded from your favorite dude. I'm not talking about how you showed up and made sure you was looking to get on the church Instagram. No, I'm talking, did you have a personal relationship with the God of this Bible? <laughs> And many in the past, great heroes of faith, have given their lives for now the freedoms that we enjoy so casually. And the book of Romans is considered one of the greatest theological texts to ever exist. And the idea that we are born again, not by our works, but by the grace of God, so that no man can boast. That putting faith in Christ Jesus is the only stamp you need in your passport for eternal life. The book of Romans is so radical, it literally threatened the entire religion religious establishment. And so tonight, when I preach out of the book of Romans, it's not just like, oh yeah, I've heard of that book. And okay, I think it says some things that are interesting. This is in many ways the framing and the foundation for not only what we believe, but why we believe and how we believe what we believe today. This book in your life. In the book of Romans, it's written by the majority author of the New Testament, a man named the Apostle Paul. He's credited with writing two thirds of the New Testament. And when he writes the book of Romans, he's writing to Christians in the Roman Empire. And in doing so, specifically addressing Jewish believers who have put their faith in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, and been born again in fresh relationship with God the Father. And so all throughout the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is appealing to stories in the Old Testament to actually prove and validate the authenticity of the new. You've gotta understand that all over the New Testament, you have Old Testament references because the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are merged by virtue of the blood of Christ Jesus. 
Jesus. The old covenant is the new concealed. The new covenant is the Old Testament revealed. It brings to us the fullness of the revelation of what God hid in the pages of the Old Testament text. For example, when you put faith in Christ Jesus and understand that he was referred to as the Lamb of God, all of a sudden, the Jewish practice of sacrificing a lamb on Passover makes sense. Why? Because the Old Testament now has been brought to a new revelatory light because of the work and the ministry of our great high priest, the man, Jesus Christ. And so when you read the book of Romans, you see Paul doing all these throwbacks to the Old Testament because he is reminding this people, you don't serve two different gods. You gotta get this, you gotta get this because there is a heresy that loves to rear its ugly head and it unfortunately is rearing its ugly head in some pretty major pulpits today. And it's the heresy of Martianism, the idea that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New Testament. No, we don't have different gods, we have one God. He's made manifest in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Son was hypostatic. He was fully man and he was fully God all at the same time. They are coexistent and they are co eternal and they are co-powerful. It is the only begotten son of God, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, hung on a sinner's cross, bled and died for you and me by God's own spirit, raised him from the dead on the third day, weeks later ascended into heaven and in the same manner he ascended, he will descend soon. You've got one God, you don't got two. You don't got a bipolar God. You've got a God who is more multifaceted than you've ever dared to imagine. Is God holy? Yes. Is God love? Yes. Is God grace? Yes. Is God judgment? Yes. How do all of those fit inside the context of one person? Why do you think Paul calls it a mystery? It's not a mystery we explain. It's a mystery we behold. Because when you hold to the mystery of who God is, you find yourself transformed into his image and into his likeness. Every time you read the word, it's like holding up the most brilliant diamond you have ever seen to the brightest light that you have ever seen. And it reflects the different fragments and the facets of what makes up the idiosyncrasies of the diamond that you hold. When you read the word of God, you get a fresh revelation of his character. You get a fresh revelation of how he works. You see things that you've never seen before. If you're bored with the Bible, it's not because God's boring, it's because you're boring. You have given up on the pursuit of the high call of God, which is in Christ Jesus. When we go to the Word, anywhere that you cut this Word, whether it is old or whether it is new, it bleeds the atoning blood of Jesus Christ and reveals to us the character of the God that we worship. You've got one God who has never changed his mind or his opinion about who you are, who from the very foundations of the earth saw it fit to give his one and only, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might have life. That is the gospel in a nutshell. And if you've never heard the gospel presented in that format before, and yet you've sat in church all your life, let me be the first to apologize to you. This is the gospel. And this Jesus is more worthy of our praise and adoration than we have ever dared imaginable. One of the guys that I am praying for to come into salvation, and I believe that he will, is a great sociologist named Jordan Peterson. I don't agree with all of his takes, but when he talks, I hear the curiosity of Nicodemus. By the way, his daughter is a spirit-filled, born-again believer already. But I'll never forget the clip of the podcast that I saw of Mr. Peterson not too many months ago. I believe he may have been in conversation with Joe Rogan or potentially another. And they were asking him his thoughts on the Bible and he began to weep. And I thought to myself, when's the last time that I've wept in these pages? And he said, this is what gets me about the gospel. He said, if this is true, God is more terrifyingly real than I have ever imagined. And I thought to myself, when's the last time that the reality of God has gripped your heart in such a way that you go, God, you are more real than the breath in my lungs.
You are more real than the skin on my bones. You are more real than the stage that I stand on. The greatest, most real, raw form of truth in my life is the triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I love the book of Romans. I got an ongoing joke with multiple friends of mine. Stay out of Romans. Because when you get into Romans, it'll mess you up. Did you know that many, that's Paul, that's me and him joke, stay out of Romans. Did you know that many, many revivals in recorded history have been credited, watch, to the public sidewalk reading of the book of Romans? Not your worship concert. Not your TED talk with a little bit of therapeutic deism thrown in. Not our personality cults. The public reading of the book of Romans. Can you imagine living under a thousand years of religious bondage and all of a sudden you're walking down the street after your 12 hour shift in a coal mine and you hear somebody declaring that if we would just put faith in Christ Jesus, our lives could be made new. The word of God has the power without any pomp and circumstance to transform even the hardest hearts. And that's why I'm unapologetic. Look, Sunday evening, we got more time. I'm gonna tell stories and tell jokes and have fun and all those types of things. At the end of the day, I want you to leave here freaking overdosed on the word of God. Because when you get into the word and the word gets into you, the scripture says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You get the leaven of the word in your life. The yeast of God's word will cause everything inside of you to begin to rise. Now we live during a time like Samuel the prophet lived where the word of God and his revelation is rare. And the best thing that we can serve this generation, listen, if you came here on a Sunday night in Seattle, it's because you wanna be in church, number one, because ain't nobody in Seattle wanna be in church. Number two, if you came for comedy hour, there's a thousand guys who do it better than me. If you came for celebrity hour, there's a thousand guys who do it better than me. But if you came for the unbridled, unadulterated word of God, you came to the right place because we have built our lives off the foundation of what this text says. You know, when we was planting a church nine years ago, all the advice I got was like, look, man, you're young, you're gonna attract younger people and you really gotta change the way that you preach. And these people, they ain't, going, they ain't going to take all this word. They ain't going to take all these references. They ain't going to take all these prophetic stuff. You're going to scare them off. I've found actually the exact opposite to be true. People are starving for the word of God. People are starving for the truth of scripture. They are starving for something that has the authority to transform their life. There are a lot of good words written by a lot of good authors in a lot of good books but there ain't no book like this one. Romans 9, starting in verse 10. Paul utilizing an Old Testament example to speak to the nature of God says this, when Isaac married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins. But before they was born, watch, watch, before they were born, watch. Before they had done anything good or bad, watch. She received a message from God. That message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. Listen, you ain't ready for tonight because it is gonna completely dismantle your entire paradigm of how God needs to fit within the framework of how our generation defines fairness. It's gonna just destroy your mind tonight and get ready. Now, when you read Romans 9 and 10, it almost reads like when Isaac married Rebecca, the next day, supernaturally, out popped twins. When Isaac married Rebecca, bam, she gave birth to twins. But what you don't know is the background, and here is that background. It would be, watch, 20 years of praying before Isaac 
and Rebecca were able to conceive. It's interesting. Abraham and Sarah struggle with infertility. Isaac and Rebecca struggle with infertility. Jacob and Rachel struggle with infertility. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, struggles with infertility. And Hannah, the mother of Samuel, struggles with infertility. One of my favorite stories in all of scripture comes from 1 Samuel 1 and 2. Where a mom named Hannah is so desperate for God to revoke her shame by opening her womb and enabling her to conceive. What is so interesting about 1 Samuel 1 is it says it was the Lord who closed Hannah's womb. You've got to hear me tonight. Just because your promise is delayed does not mean that it's denied. The Lord will close in one season to prepare you for what he's about to open in the next season. Listen, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His strategies are high above. Were you there when he hung the stars? No. Were you there when he spoke the earth into formation without your advice? No. Were you there when he breathed into dirt to make man, put man to sleep to make woman? Were you there? No, no, and no. Which means God has been faithful before you thought you could give him advice. He will be even more faithful long after you have gone from dust to dust and ashes to ashes. And the reality is how often do we develop an offense in our heart towards God because he operates on a different timetable than us. Hear me, the next time that you're offended that somebody else has gotten their blessing and you're still waiting for yours, why don't you just celebrate what they have received until God can trust you with what you've been praying for? Well, God, why does everybody else get ahead? Why is everybody else getting a promotion? Why is everybody else having a baby? Why is everybody else finding a spouse? Why is everybody else getting an upgrade at their work? Why is everybody else getting a pay raise? Why is everybody else getting noticed except poor old me? Because maybe, just maybe, at the end of your life, what God is most interested in is the development of your heart. And sometimes he doesn't get access to the basement rooms of your heart until you walk through hell, feel like giving up, find yourself on your knees crying out to a God who has the power to save. There's a reason God allows us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, because there is something about that shadow that lights up the dark places of our heart, for there is no hole so deep that Christ is not deeper still. So Hannah's desperate for a baby. She finds herself living in a city named Shiloh. And in the city named Shiloh, this was before Solomon would build the temple. So they had temporary temple set up. It was called the tabernacle. And there was a man named Eli who was the priest who oversaw that tabernacle. And there came a moment in Hannah's life where she was so sick and tired of being sick and tired that with every ounce of energy she had left, she found herself as an uninvited guest marching to the tabernacle to put a demand on what only God could provide. And she would not be moved until the God of heaven responded with an answer. The problem is that Eli is so corrupt in his heart because of the apostasy of his sons that the Bible says Hannah is crying out to God in the tabernacle. But she is crying out from such a deep place in her soul that her mouth is moving, but words aren't coming out. Have you ever been so desperate for a miracle that the only thing that you can offer God is a silent prayer. And Hannah's on her knees crying out to God. And Eli sees her from afar off and walks up. And this is what he says. Go home, you're drunk. Only drunk people act like this. You're out here carrying on, crying, making a big old scene. 
Your mouth is moving, but ain't no words coming out. Go home. You're drunk. And Hannah responds, I'm not drunk. I'm desperate. Hear me, friend. God doesn't hear our prayers as much as he hears our desperation. And we so casual with our prayers, you know. <laughs> hey, God bless so-and-so and bless him, bless him, bless him. And we'll see you next week. But there is something about a desperate plea that pulls on the heartstrings of heaven. That moves the heart of God. That results in the moving of the hand of God. There was something about the desperation of Hannah. See, what you don't understand is that in the Old Testament, for a woman to lack the ability to conceive, they were seen as cursed by God. Can you imagine the shame that Hannah operates under? Can you imagine the pain of isolation and ostracization from the community that she's a part of? Can you imagine all of the baby showers that Hannah has to attend and act like she is happy? when everybody else is getting their blessing, but she is missing hers. And after so many years, it wasn't just a shallow prayer off the dome of her mind. It was a desperate prayer from the depths of her soul. And she said, you can mock me, you can laugh at me, you can despise me, you can tell me to go home, but I'm not leaving without my promise. Hannah prays for a boy. And maybe the greatest thing that Eli ever does in her life is he confers a blessing upon her. He says, Hannah, you will have that which you have asked for. <laughs> it was the scent of water. That's what you don't understand about the prophetic. It's the scent of water. It causes the roots of your faith to shoot forth because you're smelling something you haven't smelled in so many years. There is still water in the ground for us. There is still the waters of awakening and revival in the Northwest for us. And I am smelling it more today than I ever have. And something shoots forth in the heart of Hannah. And she begins to proclaim. She says, if God will give me a boy, I'll give him back to you, Eli. And you can raise him in the presence of God in the tabernacle. And in doing so, Hannah becomes a prophetic prototype for our generation even today. A mom who would labor in prayer and desperation until God gave her the promise that she so desperately asked for. But as soon as God gave it to her, she understood that this boy was simply a gift on loan from God. And what he had given to her, she had a mandate to give back to him. And so she sows her boy Samuel back into the tabernacle and he is raised in the presence of God. And from a young age, he begins to hear the voice of God that wakens him in the night, Samuel, Samuel. And finally, Eli tells him the next time you hear that voice, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Let me be honest. Let me just be real with you tonight. The best pitch that I could ever make for you to invest your life in this church is I so solemnly swear we are gonna raise our kids in revival and they will hear the voice of God for this nation. That is who we are. And that, my friend, is the type of God that we serve. Listen, you might not be a church person yourself, you may not love the rigmarole and the long services that we do on Sunday night, 
But the best thing that you will ever do for those who come after you is to plant yourself in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon his beauty, to dwell in his pavilion, that in your time of trouble, you could inquire of this God and that in doing so, he would cover you with his feathers and train you in his presence. I'm in this for my kids because they will hear the voice of God and God will use them to lead a nation. And Samuel's first prophetic word is, Eli, the judgment of God is coming against you for you have grown casual with that which is sacred. And God would raise Samuel up as a great prophet. And he would give the nation of Israel their first king, Saul. And after 40 years, he would give them the prototype of Christ, King David. And in doing so, can you imagine that every day that Hannah got the best seat in the house to see the way that God had used her son, she was thankful that she trusted God with her promise that was delayed, but it was not denied. I'm telling you tonight, the greatest thing that you can do with the treasure that you most hold dear to your heart is to trust God with your promise and watch how he'll use it to transform a nation. I'm not even preaching on Hannah tonight. I'm just so shook by this story. Abraham and Sarah struggle with infertility. Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Rachel, Hannah, Samuel, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, all struggle with infertility. Hear me tonight. It is almost as if Nothing of significance is birthed in the earth without struggle. It is almost as if you ought to keep praying when life is most difficult because God never leaves a story halfway done. It is almost as if there is a war over the next generation, both biologically and spiritually, and unless we contend in prayer, we run the risk of not seeing in fullness that which God so desires to do. Listen, I can sympathize with the story out of 1 Samuel 1. Because when I went to Israel for the first time after the doctors told us we would never have biological children again, I stood at the Western Wall and I wept and I prayed silent prayers. And I said, if there's a God in heaven, I'm asking that you would hear this plea. Now watch. You didn't choose God. Hear me. You didn't find God. You didn't even accept God. He chose you, he found you, and he accepted you. And here's the good news. Anything that God finds never goes missing again. Hear me, God found you on the street. God found you at the strip club. God found you in the middle of your divorce. He held you in the middle of your abuse. He healed you in the middle of your disease. He forgave you in the middle of your brokenness. Your relationship with God has never once been about what you can provide for him. It has always and will always be about what this God has provided for you. John 15 and 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and watch and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and that whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give you hear me you have not because you ask not see God chooses people according to his own purposes so that begs the question what is the purpose of God for your life? Luckily, John answers that question in the verse that I just read. His purpose is that you should bear fruit and that it would remain so that whatever you ask the Father in his name, he may grant you. Now watch, Jesus did not say, I have appointed you that you would bear good fruit so that you can ask for whatever enters into your mind and be foolish and then be upset when God don't do it. He said, I have appointed you that you would bear good fruit and watch 
and that fruit would remain, which means this. If the fruit doesn't remain, it wasn't good to begin with. If the fruit doesn't remain, it wasn't good to begin with. Because God don't plant temporary seeds. He plants eternal ones. See, we live in a world that has become impressed with temporary fruit. Temporary success, temporary stages, temporary lights, temporary moments in social media clout, temporary relationships, temporary love, temporary sex, temporary, temporary, temporary. And Jesus says, no, I have appointed you that you would bear fruit and that fruit would remain, which means this, all of hell wages war against your ability to remain. You want to know where the devil's going to attack you? Listen, young person. Do you want to know where the devil's going to attack you? In your ability to remain. Because the devil is not threatened by a good moment at a conference weekend at this altar. The devil is threatened when in both big ways and small ways, you commit to live an ordinary life under the extraordinary hand of God. And whether or not you're ever on the stage in the lights with your name splashed all over social media, you commit to following Jesus because it is well worth it to hear at the end of your life, well done, good and faithful servant. It is not about your temporary fruit. It is about your fruit that remains. Now listen, I don't need no ribbon or, you know, little participation trophy, but I'll tell you this, over the last nine years, there have been a thousand reasons to quit and a thousand days I felt like quitting. But my greatest contribution to this church is not my ability to preach. It's not my ability to prophesy. It's not my ability to lead. It's not my ability to find buildings. It's not my ability to fundraise. It is my ability to remain because this region desires to kick the crap out of you until you are so defeated and so destroyed that you trade it for a golf course in a more sunny location. But I refuse to quit because the greatest argument against death is an unfinished assignment and we got unfinished work in the Pacific Northwest. And if he remains, I'm going to remain. People come and go. Invites come and go. Clout comes and goes. Popularity comes and goes. Finances come and go. Invitation comes and goes. But I have met the one who sticks closer than a brother. His name is Jesus. And if he remains, so will we. That's the type of God that we serve. Now watch, watch. Roman 9 says this, watch. Before you were born. Before you were born. Before you ever had the chance to do anything good or bad. Before you could ever make a conscious decision or formulate a coherent sentence. God chose you. For his own holy purpose. I'm telling you, you could camp in one verse out of the book of Romans the next 20 years, and it would not be enough time to fully understand the weight of this revelation. Listen, I, I, like, I'm not up here trying to like manufacture emotions. I am genuinely moved by this book. I've read this a thousand times, and on the thousand and first time, I get wrecked all over again. God chose me. Before I ever offered him anything, before I ever professed faith in his one and only son, before I ever had the opportunity to love somebody else and witness to my neighbor and do good works and good deeds and memorize verses and go to Bible college, before I ever did one thing, God looked at me in my mother's womb and said, I choose you. If that don't wreck you, because your heart is seared. Now hear me, hear me, because I'm going to bring it to modern day right now. Why does the unborn baby have value? Because the calling of God doesn't start after you're born. It starts before you are born. Why does the unborn baby have value? Because God's precedence, God's purpose takes precedence over a person's choice. While you were in the womb, God was establishing your future. He was imparting gifts and anointings. And God himself was downloading dreams in your heart 
and vision into your spirit. You didn't just wake up one day and stumble into the talent you have now. Don't be dumb. Listen, none of us in this room, myself most of all, are good enough, qualified enough, or talented enough to have the goodness and the graciousness of God that has been afforded on our behalf. While you were in the womb, God said, I choose this one. Now watch, in 2011, this is very interesting, scientists observed a phenomenon. And that was this. When a human sperm cell makes contact with an egg, watch. There is an unexplainable flash of light that occurs as a result. They may not understand it, but I think the church does. The universe began with a declaration, let there be light. And the miracle of life begins with that same command, let there be light. I believe that flash of light, that act of conception is the moment by which a spirit a soul and a body are brought together with divine purpose as the result of God making a choice. The statistics are astronomical that you would be alive today. You hit the jackpot already. You was the one that broke through. You were the one that made it. Born in a generation that idolizes the sacrifice of children, somehow you survived. The fact that you're even here with breath in your lungs and purpose in your heart is a miracle already. Why? Because when God chose you, he said, this one belongs to me. See, God has a unique purpose in mind when he chose you. You may have been unplanned, but you are not a mistake. You didn't somehow get on the wrong bus and find yourself at pursuit. God has led you to this very moment for this particular purpose. And even if it doesn't quite all make sense to you, God's got you right where he wants you. God said it. I believe it. And that settles it. Now watch verse 12. Watch, watch. God calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. For Rebecca was told, your older son will serve you're younger. You might not understand the significance of this, but in the Hebrew culture, it was always the firstborn that carried on the family's name. It was the firstborn that got the lion's share of the inheritance. It was the firstborn that got the father's blessing prior to him passing away. And yet God speaks to Rebecca and says, not so with the ones that you will have. For in fact, the older will serve the younger. Now hear me. There is no first or second to God because he is not bound by the limitations of time or space. The world said Esau is first, but God said, yeah, but Jacob is chosen. You gotta hear me tonight because I'm gonna speak directly right now to the anxiety in your heart. Watch, when I'm chosen, I don't need to be first. When I'm chosen, I don't need to be loud. When I'm chosen, I don't need to be what's next up. When I'm chosen, I don't need to be noticed. When I'm chosen, I don't need to be promoted. When I'm chosen, I don't need to be praised. When I'm chosen, I can rest assured that the favor and the anointing God has placed on my life will open every door I need, pay every bill I got, and establish every step I take. Are you feeling overlooked tonight? Relax, you've been chosen, and that's enough. You've been chosen. <laughs> See, when you've been chosen, I make no mistake, you, you don't gotta elbow, elbow other people out and operate under this false identity, and I gotta be the loudest and the cutest and the funniest and the smartest because I've just gotta be noticed, and if I don't manufacture these things for myself, then I will never get where I so desire to go. Here's the problem. Promotion that you have to manufacture yourself is promotion that you have to continue to manufacture the rest of your life in order to keep. But when God promotes you because you was chosen, it wasn't about you. It'll never be about you. It'll always be about him. And God don't have to work to keep your promotion secure because when he makes a choice, that settles it for all of eternity. Uh, 
See, when I'm, when I'm chosen, huh? yeah, I, look, I, I knew from a, a young age that God had some sort of ministry call in my life, but I, I didn't know what it would look like. And I ended up working in politics for a decade and I bumped around and I, I did commercial construction and I ended up in pest control and I tried my hand at a bunch of different things and I, I always sensed that there was this ministry call in my life and time after time after time, I would have to fight the temptation to try to, in my own power, open a door that was not yet ready. And here's the reality. The calling of God was always on my life, but God knew that I needed development in my heart before he opened the door to full-time vocational ministry. I could have forced one open, but when you force one open, just be aware, the crowd will force it closed. One season they exalt you, the next season they shout crucify you. They're the most unfaithful bunch that has ever existed. But when God calls and God elects and God predestines and God confirms and God secures, you can rest easy at night knowing I'm gonna wake up tomorrow just as anointed as I was today. I don't gotta fake it. I don't gotta pretend. Because look, when you're anointed, you don't have to announce it. Everyone just knows. We got a whole generation trying to announce their anointing. Uh, they got all their Facebook titles. I'm apostle of this. And I went to the global school of God's so forth and then. They try to just promote themselves as much as possible. It's so cheesy. It is so uncomfortably cheesy. I am uncomfortable for you when I see that on your page. I cringe. Because when you're anointed, you don't got to announce it. When you're chosen, you don't got to announce it. People just know. Now watch. The word chosen in the Greek is the word electos. Watch, it's where we get the English word election. It means personally selected by God for the rendering of special service unto him. When God elects, hear me, when God elects, there is no recounts because the race isn't even close. When God chooses, there ain't no debate. There ain't no negotiation. When God stamps a person, a people, a church, or a region with his holy intention, there ain't no demon in hell or power on earth that can stop our God. Colossians 3 and 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, ones who are holy and dearly loved. 2 Timothy 2 and 10. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Romans 8 and 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Titus 1 and 1. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen. Revelation 17 and 4. They will make war with the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome them for he is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings and those who are with him are called chosen and they are called faithful. Can you imagine if your relationship with God was dependent on your own ability to be good? You would lose before you even started. No man knows how bad he is until he tries to be good. It was by his own blood that he entered the most holy place. It was by his own stripes that we are made whole. It was by his own death that he purchased us back. It was by his own spirit that he sealed us until the final day of salvation. Do you know what I contributed to the salvation process? My sin. And I contributed a lot. I was a top contributor. But today, I have victory in Jesus because he sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood and he loved me before I knew him so all my love is due him he plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood Abraham lied Sarah mocked Moses stuttered Hosea's wife was a real life hooker Jacob was a liar, David had an affair, Solomon was too rich, Jesus was too poor, Isaac was too old, David was too young, Peter was too fearful, Naomi was a widow, Paul was a murderer, Jonah was a prodigal, Miriam was a gossip, Thomas was a doubter, Jeremiah was depressed, Elijah was burned out, John the Baptist was a loud mouth, Martha was a worrywart, Noah got drunk, and Lazarus was dead, and yet God used them all. So what's your excuse? Now hear me, pursuit. God chooses people. 
not according to their good or bad works, but instead according to his own sovereign purposes. And God gets the most glory from the messiest circumstances. And if your journey don't require grace, it wasn't a journey of faith to begin with. You must offload the anxiety related to not being where you want to be today. I should be further in my career. I should be more advanced in my spiritual development. My finances should be greater. My kids should be better. My biological clock is ticking. My options are running out. My future is looking bleak. The God that you serve causes the sun to stand still in order to intervene on behalf of his people. The God you serve says one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The God that you serve causes the barren to rejoice, the desert to prosper, the orphan to be adopted, and the dead to live. The God that you serve created time, therefore God doesn't serve time, time serves Him. And when He says it's time, there ain't no devil in hell that can stop what God intends. I heard the Lord say it this week. It's time, pursuit. It's time. It's time. It's time. But God, we ain't ready. But God, how are we going to do it? But God, we don't got enough money. But God, where the resource going to come from? But God, how are you going to provide? But God, how's it going to look? And what about the volunteers and the team and the makeup and the services? And, and God, how, 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 how? But when God says it's time, it's because he's already answered all of those questions. And by the way, before you take that step of faith, God won't ever give you the answer to all them questions. He knows. He also knows that you don't know, but he also knows what is most needed for the development of your life is not facts, it's faith. <laughs> and faith takes a step not knowing if the water is gonna hold you up. But faith says, I'd rather sink in the waves with Jesus than sit on this boat one day longer. <laughs> Verse 13, I'm almost done. Just as it is written, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. Oh, but, but, but God, that's like not fair and like, like my university professor was like saying that like, that's not how this works. And like, there's this like, you know, transgender TikTok theologian that I follow and they're telling me it's different. And, but God, like I read a book once by an author who said he knows what he's talking about. And so like, really this can't be the way that God works. And yet God is not looking for your opinion on his ethic. Huh. How many times do we judge the eternal through our very narrow view of what our culture determines is moral or fair in this very moment? Jacob have I loved. That word means chosen, protected, blessed. But Esau have I hated. That means rejected and held in disregard. This is often a misunderstood verse. The concept being recorded in Romans 9 is that God chose Jacob, God blessed Jacob, he promoted Jacob, and through him, a nation called Israel would be birthed. The reason God chose Jacob over Esau was to prove to the nations of the earth and every generation that would come after, when I choose the foolish, it'll confound the wise. When I choose the last, they will come first. And let me just prove to you that I'm in charge by sovereignly choosing Jacob to birth the nation that I have always had in my heart. When God makes a choice, it overcomes every objection of man. Hear me clearly tonight. The calling of God is not fair. Get over it. Literally. Like I'm trying to be kind, but not really. Get over it. No amount of whining or projecting your limited view of what you think is fair is gonna change the mind of God. The calling of God is not fair. You know what also isn't fair? The anointing of God. You know what also is not fair? The election of God. Stop trying to figure it out. God raises one up and he puts another down. 
God is less interested in humanity's definition of fairness and more interested in the world's need for redemption. Well, God, it's not fair. Why'd they have to wait 25 years for their baby and that other person got theirs right away? It just doesn't make sense. And you know, if God was really true and fair and kind and ethical, you know, he just wouldn't operate that way. Maybe just maybe God understands things that your brain would melt if he ever even showed you a fraction of 1%. And maybe you ought to trust God today that he has seen the unseeable and knows the unknowable. And that God has the sovereign privilege of making decisions that you will never understand to accomplish purposes that you could never quantify. Here's the good news of the new covenant. Watch. Because you might be here tonight going, oh God, this, uh, I, I think I like this message, but what if God didn't choose me? Okay, just shut up for a minute and watch. Here's the good news of the new covenant. Through Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus, you automatically become chosen. Just like Jacob was chosen so many thousands of years ago. Let me prove it to you. Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Do you believe in Jesus? Good. That means you've been chosen. Have your sins been forgiven? Good. That means you've been chosen. You don't have to play the guessing game today. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, will be chosen, and will be redeemed. I wish I had all the time to recount all the mistakes of Jacob. I'm sure it would be of great encouragement to you today. He convinces his brother Esau to sell his birthright. He steals his father's blessing. He runs away from his family like a coward. And that brings us all the way to Genesis 32. Jacob has been on the run for 20 years. Finally, after all this time, his past is getting ready to catch up. Jacob catches wind that Esau is coming after him with 400 men. In great fear and distress, Jacob cries out to the Lord in Genesis 32, starting in verse 10. He says, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. No, duh. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me. But God, you have said, I will surely make you prosper and I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Hear me, every journey of faith starts out with this honest realization. God, I am unworthy. God, I don't deserve this. God, I cannot earn this. But in your kindness and your faithfulness, will you remember your promises? Will you save my family? And will you prosper my offspring? Hear me tonight, because somebody in this room needs this word. You don't get breakthrough until you're willing to be honest. Because God refuses to fix what you fake. I have tried in my own power and it hasn't worked. I've attempted to manufacture my own blessing. It hasn't worked. It looks like Esau is gonna kill me and God, I probably deserve it. But God, I am reminded of what you have said. And if I've ever needed help, it's now. And in that moment, it's like God reveals himself to Jacob. This is what I was waiting for all along, you big dummy. Of course you don't deserve it. Of course you didn't earn it. Of course you messed up a thousand times. But your mistakes only prove my faithfulness. I chose you and there ain't one thing that you can do about it. <laughs> Watch how the story unfolds. 
That night, Jacob got up and he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons. They crossed the Jabbok River. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Theologians refer to this man as a Christophany, a manifestation of Christ in the Old Testament prior to the incarnation. The man that Jacob wrestled with wasn't just any ordinary angel. He was wrestling with God himself from evening until daybreak. Now this, this my friends is a strange idea. With one command from his voice, God created the galaxies. And yet Jacob wrestles with God throughout the night. I didn't used to understand this verse until I got older in my faith. And there have been several nights, even over the last few months, where I have wrestled with God all evening, often without sleep, contending for the promises that he has made my generation. And here's what I have come to realize. God invites us into the struggle to develop the deep things of our hearts because some ideas and some dreams and some visions are so deep inside of you that the only way that they rise to the top is through the construct of conflict. What if what you struggle with actually testifies to the redemptive gift that you carry? We don't wrestle with God to try and change his opinion. We don't argue with God in an effort to eke out a blessing, but God invites us to contend in order to demonstrate his faithfulness. The apostle Paul says it this way, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. That term lay hold in the Greek means to arrest, to catch, to capture, to seize, or to aggressively take. I think about that in the context of prayer and petition. When God gives you a promise, there are seasons by which you go to war, contending for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. You ever had a kid far from God? You go to war. You ever have a loved one on death's door? You go to war. You ever been dealing with a demonic principality and power? You go to war. I would venture to say as a church, we have been invited to go to war for the Northwest and this fight will not be won by dead faith or lukewarm believers, but instead those who are willing to contend through the night season, hanging on when all of hell is breaking loose, hanging on when all they wanna do is give up because they are convinced no matter how many mistakes I've made, no matter how far I've been gone, no matter how many people I've messed up, no matter how much trauma and drama I've seen or I've created, I am convinced that God chose me for this. And there ain't no place that I'd rather be. Watch, it ends here. But when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint. And the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and you have prevailed. <laughs> So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying it's because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. Where is the generation of people who will say, even when it's difficult, even when it's tough, even when it's grueling, even when I feel overlooked, even when I don't understand, I'm not leaving without a blessing, even if it takes me all night to receive it. Victory belongs to the persistent. Blessing belongs to the stubborn. If you feel like you've been fighting to just stay afloat, I got a word for you. Don't give up because God's about to change your name. He's about to mark your life. He's about to fulfill his promise. And it's simply too precious for you to let go now. How many people give up before daybreak? 
How many believers get offended at the struggle and decide to go back to their old ways of living? How many Christians are moments away from transformation but don't stay engaged when the waves get wild? Jacob was not aware of the great destiny that he carried until this event. And all of a sudden in this moment with God, Jacob has a revelation that would provide context for the conflict he had faced his entire life. The fight wasn't over me. It was over the nation I carried in my womb. Hear me, hear me, hear me. I'm done, I, I'm done, hear me. You got a nation inside of you. You got a family depending on you. You got friends who are only alive because of the hope they see inside of you. Don't give up now, for it is worth it to see his face. And you are closer today than you have ever been. The enemy wants you to discount your destiny. The Lord sent me here tonight to remind you of the value of that which you carry. And yes, this journey of contending with God and men, it will mark you and you will walk with a limp, but your wounds are not symbols of your failure. They are a testimony of God's great grace, which is sufficient for you and for me. Hear me. I, I walk different today than I did nine years ago. I walk with the marks of a man who has wrestled with God and others and prevailed. And I am overcome by the fear, the awe, and the reverence that I have seen him face to face. And I have lived. And I want you to know, if you follow this Jesus, as sure as I'm standing on this stage, you will walk with a limp. And in fact, hear me, I don't trust your commitment until I see your limp. Where's the generation who walks with a limp, but they don't try to hide it? Because it's a testament to wrestling all night and refusing to give up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I know I walk different. I, I know. I, I know I talk different. I, I know I process different. I, I know my heart's different. I, I know I'm a different type of person. I, I know I'm not the normal, the ordinary. I know I come with all my bumps and bruises and irregularities. No, no, no. I, I know that I walk with a limp. But you've got to understand this limp doesn't embarrass me. It's the brand of a God who is drawn close. And that limp becomes the testimony. And that's why Paul says when they question his apostleship, he turns around and he says, look at my back. He said, I was whipped and left for dead outside the city. I was stoned when I was contending for your faith. I have labored like a woman in birth until Christ was formed in you. You wanna question my apostleship? I'm the only true father that you've ever had. Look at my limp. And I hope the reality the God that you interact with on nights like this is so freaking real to you that you leave this place walking different than you've ever walked before. People look at you in your classroom Monday morning, they go, man, what did you get into? Bro, I can't even explain it, man. I, I walked with a limp. I didn't always preach like this. I didn't always teach like this. I didn't always minister like this. I get emotional when I preach like once a year, that'd be good for me. I can't even make it through a sermon without weeping in the presence of God because I walk with a limp from the pages of this book. And I'm telling you, I feel the burning heart of God tonight for this generation. And I refuse to give up now for we are close than we have ever been. And if God has to raise a generation of young men, young women from Pursuit Seattle who walk with a limp so the region around us can run free, then it will be well worth it. Let them walk over our bones.
into the inheritance that God so desires. I'm telling you, pursuit Seattle. You carry a nation inside of you. What God is doing here is so special and it's so precious. Because what's happening in Seattle is not just for Seattle. It's for the nation. We carry a nation in our womb. And that's why you have fought the battles you have. And that's why you deal with the anxiety and the depression and the fear and the manic episodes. And that's why you feel like you're going insane. And that's why everything is pulling on you to move out of this region. And that's why you want to give up five times a week and six times on Sunday. And that's why you feel like you're fighting all of hell. And that's why you feel like you can't ever gain traction. And that's why you're so upside down half the time that you don't even know if you're feeling really born again at all. That's why you've experienced the drama, the trauma, and the warfare you have. Why? Because when the enemy looks at your life he sees a nation that you carry if you're wrestling with God don't stop now but contend until daybreak because there is something that is coming by the time that Esau sees Jacob like the father who sees the prodigal son, he embraces the one who has betrayed him. He says, Jacob, I'm just glad to have you back home. <laughs> God is a master of bringing all things together for the good of those who love him. And sometimes what's hard for us is we don't like to contend with yet unresolved conflict in our life. And I'm here to tell you, you don't start contending after the conflict has been resolved. You contend until God, by His goodness and His grace, resolves the conflict you could have never fixed yourself. Oh, but God, I'm still struggling. Join the club. You're not special. We're all struggling. But God, I'm still facing stuff. Yeah, stand in line. We're all facing stuff. But if you wait until you feel like you got it all figured out to begin to contend for the nation inside of you, the enemy will always tell you you're too young until one day he tells you you're too old. I know you're dealing with stuff. I know you're carrying it. I can feel it in the freaking room. But I'm telling you, regardless of what you're facing today, you got an invitation to wrestle with God. And I'm hanging on to daybreak and looking for a few good men and good women who will hang on with me. Let's stand as we close.